0: Welcome to CAA Live, the Council of American Ambassadors foreign affairs podcast. My name is Keisha King and I'm the Council's communications manager. This episode features a presentation and Q&A session on Germany with Dr. Steve Sokol at the Council's Potpourri of Diplomacy Conference on November 7th, 2018. This session was moderated by CAA member Ambassador Aldona
1: Enjoy. Well, good morning and we'll move on to a different region. I am very pleased today to welcome Dr. Steven Sokol as our next speaker. We actually have two things that are in common. One of them, and a love and understanding and a knowledge of a region. And the other, are last names that everyone mispronounces. So, <laughs> so we're, we're even on this. And again, once again, welcome and thank you for being here. Dr. Sokol holds a Doctorate of Laws and Policy from uh, from Northeastern University and a Master's in International Relations and International Economics from John Hopkins University, and also a Bachelor of Arts for Wesleyan University. He has worked in Germany for more than a decade, and his time there included working at the German Marshall Fund and at the Aspen Institute in Berlin. And once stateside, he spent time at the Fulbright and Jaworski and several other nonprofit organizations and at the World Affairs Council in Pittsburgh. Dr. Sokol was named the president of the American Council on Germany in 2015. And the council is an independent organization uh, that it's really purpose is to strengthen the German-American relations, which focuses on the economy, political and security cooperation. So please welcome Steve.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much. Since you started by um, talking about last names, and since um, I have two very tough acts to follow in terms of the, the tour de horizon that we heard first thing this morning and the discussion about Turkey, each of which I think could have gone on all day, let me start with a short anecdote about names. How many of you know what Sokol means? You surely know. No. It's a Polish name. Um, Sokol means falcon in almost every Slavic language. And one of the things, falcon, a bird of prey. Bird. A bird. Yes, and so one of my favorite stories about one of the jobs that I had when I was working in Germany was for a nonprofit consulting company in the field of defense conversion And I ran technical assistance programs in Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union in the mid-1990s. And everywhere, I was greeted by the same line because Eastern Europeans are so poetic. A falcon who's doing the work of a dove. And I just thought that that was fantastic. So I appreciate your your commenting on names. Names can be difficult. They can be challenging. um, But there are always good stories associated with names. So let me start by just a, a shameless plug. How many of you are familiar with the American Council on Germany? Let me say a line or two about the ACG so that you know where I'm coming from. The American Council on Germany was founded in 1952 um, by a group of Americans who said it's important to change the Deutschlandbild, or the image of Germany after the first half of the 20th century, and to strengthen strong transatlantic relations between Europe and the United States. Um, I joke about it sometimes. I say, on a good day, we're a think tank. On a bad day, we're glorified event planners. I think for those of you that were involved in public diplomacy in your roles as ambassadors and in the Foreign Service, have a great appreciation for that kind of work. I look at it as um, we're in the business of educating, of informing, and engaging in transatlantic dialogue. I think our work as a bilateral organization is more important than ever, particularly because the only way to understand contemporary Germany is to put it in a European context And, of course, the only way to understand contemporary Europe is to understand Germany's role within Europe. Obviously, it's a very important country, um, and I'm happy to talk to you a little bit about Germany. I had a a similar assignment uh, to Nick Danforth, um, talk about everything German in the space of a very short amount of time. So I thought I would start by talking a little bit about German domestic politics, um, because although it's a country that's often described as being very boring, There's a lot of exciting stuff going on in the German political scene at the moment. And then talk a little bit about the transatlantic relationship um, and possibly Germany's role on the world stage. I'm happy to take questions on any of that. How many of you have spent any time in Germany? Everybody. How many of you have spent time in Berlin? Almost everybody. How many of you were in Berlin before 1989, and how many of you have been there since 1989? So I it, this might sound odd, but um, I actually feel very lucky that I got to know Berlin before 1989, before the wall came down. Um, I was, was lucky enough to actually be a student in Berlin in 1989 um, and got to know Berlin firsthand beforehand, was a, a witness to history as the wall was coming down. Um, But the reason why I feel lucky is because I think if one goes to Berlin for the very first time now, one can't imagine that this city or the country or Europe were divided. One doesn't see the signs of division in modern Berlin. Um, And I think that that's a testament to Germany in many senses um, because it's really been decades of of stability that have shaped the city and have shaped the country. Um, But what we're seeing right now is um, a period of real transition. Ambassador Wisner uh, touched on it when he said that we're finally beginning, or we're finally seeing the beginning of the end of the Merkel era. Uh, Just over a week ago, she announced that after 18 years, she would not um, run as a candidate To be the head of her party the christian democratic union and shortly after that she also said that she would refrain from running for chancellor again um, ideally in 2021 which is when the next elections are slated to happen they could happen earlier and we can get into that in the discussion if you're interested in that but i think it's a mistake to think of her as a lame duck um, although that's something that one's seeing in the press a little bit One should not underestimate her. Um, She has demonstrated time and time again that she has tremendous political acumen, and I think that that's what we're seeing right now with her announcement, uh, and that she is managing her departure rather than being ousted. Um, The good thing is she can focus on governing, and that's what I think will be very telling in the next months and years, is that instead of dealing with party politics and instead of dealing with some of the criticism that she's had to, to cope with in the last couple of years, um, she will hopefully truly lead and hopefully come with some bold visions. Now, there are some people that are very critical of the Chancellor and say that that's not likely uh, to happen, but I think that her demonstrated commitments to things like diplomacy multilateralism but also common decency will prevail in that she will maybe come out of her shell a little bit and and lead Um, in any case domestic politics will continue to be front and center for germany in the coming months um, as i would say they have been basically since since 2017 um, when Europe was facing a slate of elections. Um, German politics are not so different from the politics that we've seen in other parts of Europe, even that we've seen here in the United States, in terms of the rise of populism, the polarization of politics. Uh, there are now, since um, the new government was formed, seven parties represented in the German Bundestag, and the Volksparteien, the traditional people's parties of the Christian Democrats which are center-right, and the Social Democrats, which are center-left, have greatly reduced influence. Um, In the heyday, in the post-war period, they would have 85 to 90% of the vote between the two of them. That has dwindled to about 45% uh, between the two of them. And one of the things that many people in the electorate complain about is that it's hard to see distinct political profiles, or distinct profiles between the different political parties. Um, So with the rise of the left party on the far left, which is an outgrowth of the former communist party in the east, and the rise of the alternative for Germany, this populist right-wing party that you've all heard about, which is now represented in all 16 state legislatures um, and is particularly strong in the eastern part of the country, uh, there has been a significant move to the political right um, with a party that we can actually talk a little bit more about in the Q&A, sort of what the origin of that party was and what the likelihood is of its, of its continuation. But their um, appearance on the political landscape is going to force the Christian Democrats uh, under a new leader to move to the right. Um, he or she will have to move the Christian Democrats um, toward the right in order to stop the hemorrhaging of votes away from their party um, to the AFD, but also interestingly enough to the Green Party, um, and uh, to try to unite the the Christian Democrats among themselves. Um, For me, the next sort of really important date to be looking at when it comes to to German politics is the European elections of May of next year. I don't think that we can expect major upsets in Germany between now and then, regardless of who the new chair of the Christian Democratic Union is. Um, My sense is that the governing coalition between the Christian Democrats and the Social Democrats uh, will hold together at least until next year, and certainly that Merkel is committed to staying in office until the end of her term in 2021. there are a number of different options, a number of different scenarios if the current government does fall apart. Um, and again, we can, we can talk about that a little bit more if that's something that, that interests you. Um, the one constant in all of this, I think, is a, is a commitment to the United States, particularly from the political leadership uh, in Germany. Um, I have noted, and, and this was touched on a little bit uh, by Nick Danforth in, in the Turkish context, I think it's important to be aware of rising anti-Americanism in the public and in certain factions of society. Um, But across the board, the commitment to the transatlantic relationship is there despite um, some of the tensions in the relationship. Um, One of the things that one hears uh, over and over again from political leaders, whether it's the former German president, Joachim Gauck, whether it's the chancellor herself, whether it's the former foreign minister, Sigmar Gabriel, or the current foreign minister, Heiko Maas, is Europe, Germany, has to take destiny in its own hands, um, but that there is a shared responsibility or and that there's a shared responsibility in meeting some of today's challenges, um, but at the same time, that there is Uh, recognition of um, the dependence on the United States. Just today, the German foreign minister, after the midterm elections, said we have to invest in Europe's ability to act, particularly in areas where we have differences, such as tariffs, security, climate. But um, in this complex world, despite the differences between the United States and Europe, we have to develop common approaches to the challenges that we share. Um, And I think that that's something that's worth keeping in mind. Where are the areas? Where are the opportunities that Europe, and particularly Germany, can work together? Um, China came up this morning. I think that that's obviously a place where we should be looking for constructive diplomacy. But the Germans um, tend to be very inwardly focused um, at the moment. There is, is certainly recognition that Germany has been uh, the leading beneficiary of the rules-based system and the liberal world order that were established after World War II, and that's um, collapsing around them right now. Um, there's recognition that security and also free trade routes were guaranteed by other powers. Um, but many of those uh, institutions and structures are now being called into question. and. It, starts with our president saying that the United States is no longer willing to guarantee some of those things. But even within Europe, um, the Brexit is posing a major area of concern to to German business um, and to the European project in general, this being the first time that a member wants to leave the EU. The Euro crisis, um, the migration crisis, they've both demonstrated that common rules within the European structure don't quite work. Um, And I think that Germany in some senses has been somewhat slow to respond. Uh, The one area where I would say Germany and the Europeans um, are are trying to manage change is in their working on free trade agreements with places like Korea, Japan, other parts of Asia and Africa at a time when the United States is choosing to sit on the sidelines. let me maybe stop there. There are a number of other things that we can, we can touch on, but I just wanted in very broad brushstrokes to share some thoughts with you and, and then see which direction you'd like to go in terms of the conversation.
1: Well, thank you, Steve. Uh, perhaps if I may take advantage of being by the microphone and asking the first question, would you be kind enough to uh, share your thoughts about current events, so slash energy? Mm-hmm. Uh, Since uh, Germany and Russia are uh, are moving forward with a Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which, as we all know, will take gas from Russia, uh, uh, omitting the Baltics and Poland, uh, and uh, increasing the reliance on Russian gas into Europe, Uh, if you can share your thoughts, why in God's name is Germany doing this? It is incomprehensible to uh, most of the people who n- know the situation. Why why, and why would you do that?
2: So um, obviously, this is a, a third rail topic in, in many, many places. It's one of the things that's high on um, the US ambassador in Berlin's agenda. Uh, Rick Grinnell has been very outspoken in his criticism of Nord Stream 2. Um, It's interesting talking with Germans, and there are um, a number of Germans who are more sympathetic to Russia and who don't see this as being a, a bad thing at all. Even those Germans who are not as sympathetic to Russia say, we're not dependent on Russian energy, but this is an interdependence because they're equally dependent on payments from us, So they're not going to do anything. And this is an argument that I think is very weak, um, to say the least. But there are many people who are true transatlanticists who look at the energy agreement with Russia and say, um, this is not a sign of dependence on on Russian gas. Um, It's an economic relationship and nothing more than that. And it is, um, it makes sense. To diversify, I've seen a lot of different numbers in terms of how much gas actually comes from Russia, and it ranges from anywhere from under ten percent to thirty-five to forty percent. And I'm not sure. I mean, I, I'm being honest. I'm not sure about the accuracy and which numbers are correct. Um, the Interesting news, though I think, is the announcement by Chancellor Merkel that Germany would make a big investment in creating a um, L- a harbor that is big that has been enlarged to receive LNG um, from the United States as well. Now, obviously, that's something that's several years down the line in terms of creating the LNG plant, um, and it is something that um, you know. I think is, in, is a, in a sense, a acquiescence to some of the overtures from the current ambassador and from the current administration. Um, what's been interesting is that that's actually received more media attention abroad than it has in Germany, and I've not been able to find anybody in Germany who could tell me anything about the timing of that anou- announcement and why now.
1: If I may just follow up uh, with this, Uh, do you hear in your circles that the ultimate goal for Russia is really against the Ukraine in all of this, because uh, the flow of the gas right now goes south and then north from going south. And by creating uh, gas going from Russia, Mm -hmm. uh, bypassing that and increasing almost 70 percent of of uh, Russian gas now going into the European Union this way, you're actually uh, uh, penalizing um, uh, the Ukraine because they were moving more towards the West and more away from Russia and more into a democratic society. And by shutting that that path down or decreasing it substantially, it's really about freedom and democracy more than it is about actually money.
2: So well, I've, I've not heard that, but it is, um, I think, something that's worth considering. um, As we know, the Russians have shut off gas to the Ukraine in the past, and they've used this as a a tool to apply pressure on Ukraine in the past. Um, The Germans obviously are very concerned um, about Russian acts of aggression, the annexation of Crimea, uh, the invasion of Ukraine, and I, you know, obviously that's one of the things that motivated Germany's agreement um, in Wales in 2014 to raising their defense spending to 2%, which is a, you know, a new debate that we could talk about um, as well. So I think there is recognition that Russia um, may use this against Ukraine, but there has not been um, an outspoken um, statement against that that I've heard.
1: Stuart.
0: At this point during the session, CAA member Ambassador Stuart Bernstein asked a question about the millions of immigrants living in Germany and how they're integrating into society.
2: It's, I mean, I I would say um, that Merkel's compassionate decision to welcome the migrants, to welcome the refugees, was really the beginning of the end of the Merkel era, the way that that was, was managed. And I think that that's what his, historians will ultimately say. It wasn't her decision a week ago um, not to run again um, as the head of the CDU or as chancellor. It really started earlier than that. And this has been causing quite a bit of trouble for her. Um, it's very interesting to, to look at different cases Um, of integration and of migration. Um, There are places where people are very outspoken about the fact that they don't want to have these refugees in their communities, but there's not a refugee to be seen. And so it's sort of odd to talk to people about what it is that they're upset about. There are other communities where there are concentrations of refugees who have basically, and this is this is dissipated a little bit, but at least initially, um, they were put into high school gymnasiums so that the kids couldn't use the, the gyms because that's basically where the refugees were. Um, they've received support um, from the state in a way that citizens who have been paying taxes have not received support from the state, and that's created a real rift and a real diversion. I think the, the biggest issue, in a sense, the biggest problem, has been that many people have come in without vetting. Um, and so the Germans don't really know who these refugees are um, and what, they, um, what their backgrounds might be, what they might be capable of. Um, there are, I listen to a lot of German radio. I read a lot of German press there are frequently anecdotal stories about people who are able to come and become integrated and use the skills from their home country in Germany as well. And those, of course, are the success story. Um, There were quite a few German politicians who said, look, given the demographic changes in Germany, we need labor. This is maybe a way of thinking about bringing in new sources of labor. But one needs to have a training process and an integration process in place, and that's something that's been, been lacking. Um, it has been a challenge for the country to absorb over a million people in a fairly short period of time. Sure, um, Mr., Mr. Tal and then Mr. King.
0: At this point during the session, CAA member Ambassador Timothy Towell asked a question about the existence of neo-Nazis in present-day Germany.
2: So, I I, I mean, yes, Germany has um, neo-Nazis. Thankfully, there are strong laws against um, using the Hitler salute, using the swastika, things like that. Um, But what is, I think, disconcerting is that this party, Alternative for Germany, um, has become a a xenophobic nationalist populist party. Um, What's interesting about it, and this is where it ties in with the migration question as well, is that the people that founded the Alternative for Germany party to begin with did it because they were opposed to the common currency, the euro, and did it for economic reasons because they did not feel that Germany's participation in Europe made sense for Germany. And this party, or factions in this party, were able to capitalize on Merkel's welcoming hundreds of thousands of migrants to turn the party into a xenophobic nationalistic party as well and it was very interesting on the on the night of the election last September um, when the alternative for Germany made it into the Bundestag I remember talking with a few senior Germans who said you know it's not that serious Um, let's look at the number of people who voted for democratic parties and it's way in the majority. Um, But what we're seeing in polls is that the AFD is polling at the same level as the Social Democrats right now. And so they're on the upswing and the Social Democrats are in the downturn. And I think that anybody that thinks that the AFD is not a force to be reckoned with is making a mistake. Now, there's one sort of caveat to that or footnote to that, and that is I look at the AFD as as an amalgam of anti-voices, anti-Euro, anti-Europe, anti-immigrant. If a new party leader in the CDU can move the CDU somewhat to the right, will some of the people who voted for the AFD as a protest come back into the fold? Or are there people who actually believe in what the AFD stands for, and they're the supporters? Um, I don't know what the AFD stands it's for. It's Alternative for Germany is the the but, name of the party.
0: Yeah. Stand for what?
2: Um, I I see it as an amalgam of anti perspectives. They. Stand, they're, they're opposed to the euro, they're opposed to European integration, they're opposed to immigration. Um, some of them are, are anti-American, but some of them love Trump. So that's where it becomes a little bit more difficult to, to sort of describe them. Um, but they have been um, really a, a catch-all of voices that are dissatisfied with the status quo in German politics, um, who feel that the German political system has become watered down after too many years of a grand coalition, who feel that the German parties don't really stand for anything. Um, And I do think it's sort of interesting to to look at German politics. In the late 1970s, early 1980s, the Green Party appeared on the scene, and it was a a one-issue party. It was a party that focused on the environment, and doing away with with nuclear power. That was sort of all that the Green Party stood for. Well, their appearance started siphoning votes away from the main parties, and the main parties realized, we need to become more environmental. We need to adopt that as a plank in our political platform. And as time went on, the Greens also expanded their political platform to the point where, they were a governing party at the federal level, together with the Social Democrats. They became a party that could make a government with one of the larger parties. They've evolved um, to a point where they're now sort of not the, the sort of left of center, granola eating, you know, liberals that one thought that they were, but more bourgeois urban establishment party. Um, and I I look at a party like the AFD, and I'm not sure what the future holds for the AFD, Um, but I do think that it is a force that German politicians have to take into consideration because even if people are just voting for that party as a protest, it can weaken the political establishment.
0: Hi. So as a follow-up to that kind of sentiment about kind of the um, anti-euro, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to Brexit um, and the impact of Brexit on um, kind of German politics, but also if the AFD continues to gain traction in society, if Germany might see a similar Brexit-type movement.
2: I would be very surprised to see a... a movement, a Brexit-type movement in Germany um, that really has legs. Um, I think far too many people are committed to the European project and to Europe. Um, Where I almost see a bigger challenge is um, Berlin and Paris, right? so France and Germany, which have been considered to be the engine of European integration throughout the post-war period um, are not supporting each other enough to move the European project forward right now. Um, And I think that in Germany, there's been sort of a a constant postponement of that engagement. In 2015 and 16, Germany was involved with absorbing migrants, in 2017 people were looking at Europe and the expression in Germany was it's a super election year because there were some state elections in Germany, at the end of the year there were federal elections, but then there were key elections in the Netherlands, in France, in the run up to that, that Europe was very much focused on itself um, and very inward looking. And so there was a significant amount of hope after Macron was elected that once The new government is in place in Germany, that Franco-German engine can get powered up again, and we can work on reforms to try to move Europe forward. And that just hasn't happened. Um, It didn't happen after the election, because although Merkel won, it took a record hundred plus days to build a government. That government is a continuation of the grand coalition that governed before and is basically treading water, it's not pushing the needle, it's not thinking about the future. Um, and Merkel has been under significant attack from within her own party and within her own ranks and been unable to really find common ground um, with, with Macron. So you know, while Brexit is looming and getting closer and closer, and while German business is very, very concerned about Brexit and doesn't really care if it's a hard Brexit or a soft Brexit, it doesn't really matter from the business leaders that I've talked to, it will change their business opportunities and not for the better, that there's concern about that. Um, I sort of look at at the Franco-German axis and say that there's a bigger challenge there right now.
0: At this point during the session, a CAA member asked a question about anti-Semitism in Germany and if it has seen any increase.
2: I have. I've, I mean, I think that the, the sad thing is that anti-Semitism exists across Europe and it exists in Germany. Um, the question is, how much is there? I, is it I, have not, I have not observed an increase in anti-Semitism. Um, I do think that there's been an increase in xenophobia in Germany with AFD's appearance on the landscape and with the number of, of refugees that have come Um, to the country, Um, but I have not seen um, a rise in in anti-Semitism. We actually just had um, a former German diplomat do a um, three-week tour through the U.S. talking about German-Jewish relations um, and the way in which Germany has come to terms, or is trying to come to terms with its past. Um, the whole sort of battle with reconciliation that the country has had. And I had a chance to talk with him a little bit. And he, he said, look, this is um, a constant project for Germany. Um, he said that he is relieved, in a way, and refreshed, to hear things like the current German foreign minister, who's in his 50s, um, who's from a younger generation, say that one of the reasons why he chose to become a diplomat was to make sure that something like Auschwitz could not happen again. Um, So there are people out there that are saying we can never forget. Um, I have not detected a rise in in anti-Semitism, even in conversations that I've had um, with with representatives from the, the Jewish community in Berlin.
0: At this point during the session, a CAA member asked two questions. How are refugees assimilating into the German workforce, and how would Dr. Sokol compare the way corporations are organized in Germany versus the United States?
2: Um, so corporate structure, let me come back to. Uh, I think one thing that doesn't sort of speak to the, the um, corporate structure, but that I do think speaks to a big challenge that we have um, is workforce training and workforce preparedness. I mean, I don't think I'm saying anything new with all of you to say that, that Germany's um, system of education and training that goes hand in hand at the high school level um, is something that we could learn from. Um, there are companies, particularly in the automotive sector, companies like BMW and, and VW, um, but even companies that make windows uh, in the Pittsburgh area that um, have introduced um, this system of, of training uh, for young people. And I know that this is not a new topic, and yet I keep coming back to it, that particularly in the digital age, um, to look at how other countries train young people who are entering the workforce, but increasingly, equally important, how people who are mid-career or toward the end of their career um, are retrained so that they have the tools to deal with new technologies. I think that this is something that we could do um, a better a better job of. In terms of how um, the migrant population is being is being integrated, um, you know, it starts I- into the workforce specifically, it starts with a big challenge of German is not an easy language to learn. And so teaching this group of people German to start with is sort of the first step before they can be be integrated or adopted. One of the things that um, surprised me was to be in... Um, a pharmacy in Berlin to read about doctors who had been refugees from places like Syria where they had gotten um, a good education who were coming and practicing in Berlin in English uh, and that that seemed to be fairly easy for them. But the language issue is a huge hurdle in terms of integrating uh, these groups. There are places um, like in Heidelberg where um, a large number of refugees have been taken in, and where there are a number of programs to really try to integrate them into into society and into the community, and that means um, being able to work as well.
3: Recently, there was a piece in the paper about the continued major differences between East and West Germany. You said that it was fairly unified, and you thought things were going pretty well. This article stressed how East German women all wanted to marry West German men, that the East German men felt that they were still doing extremely poorly economically and were highly resentful of the uh, attention and support being given to the migrants. Um, I might add that when you just made your comment about learning German, um, I spent a great deal of time in in France, and, and one of the things that people talked about all the time in France was the whole issue of critical mass of migrants. Then when migrants come in over time in a controlled way, you can integrate them and assimilate them. But when you reach critical mass, in other words, in large numbers of them living together, as you just pointed out in Heidelberg, it enables the migrants to maintain their own cultures, their own language, their own religion, um, and makes it much harder for them to assimilate into the country in which they live. It's why France has its suburbs around Paris that are basically mm-hmm. Islamic cities, not French communities. Um, is that where Germany is headed? And how is the difference between East and West Germany going to be resolved?
2: So I would I would commend um, Katrin Benhold's article in the New York Times yesterday to all of you um, about the Eastern man. I think it even has that in, in the, the title. Um, And it provides a partial explanation um, of what's going on. So at the outset, what I was trying to say was that in a place like Berlin, it's very hard to see the separation that used to exist. Um, I think in parts of Germany, it's hard to see that as well. But I do think that one of the points in that article um, is that The East German male of 1989 is that first generation of those who were left behind. And we're hearing a lot about people who feel left behind, whether it's legitimate or not. But we hear a lot about people who don't feel like they are as well off today as their parents were and that their kids are not going to do as well as they do. And that's something that I could even see in the mid-1990s when I was traveling in in East Germany. in a sense, I think that the, the hope and optimism for German unification was greater and that the, um, the differences that exist between East and West are significant. And so I think that that article captures a lot of that and a lot of the, the resentment. Um, as somebody who, who spent time in Germany at that time, I thought it was fascinating that there were people who... We're like chameleons, and in a sense, Chancellor Merkel is a little bit like that, having a background in physics, um, and then having a long career in politics and in government, and part of it is because her mentor, Helmut Kohl, did not take her seriously as a threat, and she was able to to use that, Um, but I met a number of people who were able to change and able to adapt, And um, interestingly enough, I made myself somewhat unpopular with some of my West German friends when I said I sometimes think that an East German who's successful has more in common with an American than a West German because of their ability to adapt and to solve problems and to sort of deal with the environment around them. But it was also noticeable even then that there were generations of people who were never going to. Come back, um, where structural employment was rampant, where somebody in their 30s, 40s, even 20s would never work again. And those people in the early to mid 90s have had kids who are also part of that generation. And the article talks about some people who are in their 50s, but others who are in their 30s who have this resentment because their regions have become very depressed. There's very little business, um, and you have this demographic imbalance because of the brain drain um, to the West as people went to seek opportunities. And it was often independent women from the East, and that was one thing that the, the GDR did well, is it taught its women to be independent, who left to go seek better opportunities. So there is this structural issue, Um, that still exists, and there is, I think, a division between East and West, and that's why, as this article points out, but as the numbers point out as well, um, that even though the AFD is present in all 16 German states, it is um, a very strong party in places like Saxony and Saxony-Anhalt in the eastern part of Germany, and it's predominantly the men that are voting for this party. Um, So, there's more work to do, and and in in a sense, I feel that um, 10 years ago, there was more optimism and more hope for the future of Germany. It was more um, acceptable, or, or it was more predominant that one would say, hey, we have a multicultural society, but now I see a tendency, particularly through those in the AFD, to say we don't want that multicultural society uh, any anymore. Remind me of the question about the migrants. It was a
3: question about critical mass.
2: The critical mass question. So so so, so yeah. Groups, yeah so, so so so. This is not a new challenge for Germany, right? Germany, you've all heard about guest workers in Germany. Germany did not have um, a strong enough labor force. Uh, in the 60s and so it needed to bring in guest workers from places like Yugoslavia but also places like Turkey. And they came they didn't come from from Istanbul, they came from Anatolia and there are parts of Cologne, there are parts of Berlin where you can find Turkish neighborhoods where people just speak Turkish. So even over decades there has been sort of a little bit of a separation similar to what one describes in places like like Paris, um, like Brussels, but particularly among the younger generation, they all speak high German. They're all able to navigate that environment. Um, the, the problem is, um, and there have been, been a number of, of surveys that have done this, that have been done, take somebody who's Turkish and has a good resume and change the name and they will be called in for an interview under a German-sounding name, but not under a Turkish-sounding name. There is still um, a fair degree of prejudice in German society, and so how one manages that, I think, is is a critical critical test.
1: And I think we have um, still time for a very quick question.
0: At this point, a CAA member asks a question about who might succeed Angela
2: Merkel. So... Um, I have a guess based on, based on who's out there. I mean, there, there are three candidates um, who are, have, have risen to the top of the list very, very quickly. Um, one of them is Annegret Kramp-Karrenbauer, who has a name that's difficult to pronounce in, in any language, um, who is basically regarded as an heir apparent to Merkel. Um, she's somebody. Merkel has not come out and said, this is who I want to be my successor but she has been under the wing of the chancellor, Um, and I actually think that that might be a disadvantage for her. Um, A second person is a guy named Jens Spahn, who's um, currently serving as the health minister, um, and is in Merkel's cabinet, also a Christian Democrat um, parliamentarian, and um, he's not very popular, and he's made uh, a lot of enemies um, in, in Germany, in the German political scene. Um, and some people say he needs a little bit more time in order to, to really come into this role. He's somebody worth watching uh, as a potential chancellor candidate in the future, but I don't think he has a chance to come on as, um, as the head of the CDU or as a, a chancellor candidate anytime soon. The person that people are watching very, very closely is a guy named Friedrich Merz, who um, I happen to know quite well because he's the chairman of the Atlantic Brücke, which is the sister organization to the American Council on Germany. He was a member of Parliament um until about ten years ago when he was ousted from the party and has been sort of standing on the sidelines and saying, I, I'm waiting um to be asked to come back and to lead the party. Um he's a business person which, um, and, and in some of the newspaper articles that I've read, he's a multimillionaire, which might not go over so well with some people in the German public. Um, but he's somebody who I think would bring a new breath of fresh air um, to the party. He would move the party somewhat to the right. Um, he is a committed transatlanticist. He has good connections to the U.S. Uh, what I'm curious about is if he is the new um, head of the CDU, What will his relationship with Merkel be like once he takes over, and will they work together, or will there be tensions between the two of them um, after he starts? Now, in a a conversation, in a couple of conversations that I had at the beginning of this week with people, they said it's still very early days, um, even though the vote will be in early December, so it's really only a few weeks away. It's it's about a month, almost exactly a month away uh, when that vote takes place. Um, it remains to be seen if other candidates bubble up, and if any of these three candidates who are ahead um, or or basically who have declared their interest and Friedrich Merz, who's way ahead, um, it remains to be seen if any of them have any skeletons in the closet, if any of them shoot themselves in the foot, or anything that that could happen. I mean, a lot could happen in the next month, um, but I think right now there's a great deal of confidence that Friedrich Merz will come in as the head of the CDU.
1: And I think with that, we will have to enclose for now. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Doctor,
2: thank you very much for your Christmas tree.
0: That was Dr. Steve Sokol at the Council of American Ambassadors Potpourri of Diplomacy Conference. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to CAA Live on iTunes or Google Play and leave us a review. Tweet us your thoughts on this week's episode and tag us at AMER Ambassadors with the hashtag CAA Live.